This episode was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gadigal and Mongol people of the Eora Nation and the Darug people of the Dark Nation. We acknowledge that sovereignty of these lands was never ceded and pay our respects to elders past and present. Welcome to A Clash of Critics, your scholarly podcast about George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. She's Mia, I'm Scott, and today we're looking at Chapter 8 of A Game of Thrones, Bran 2. Here is the chapter summary according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Bran is climbing the towers of Winterfell when he discovers Cersei and Jamie Lannister making love and talking about the danger his father poses. Eventually, he is discovered and Jamie shoves him out the window. <laughs> yes, that is what happens. <laughs> That's very matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so in this episode, uh, we are going to be looking at how boyhood is imagined and more importantly, how it's idealized through the eyes of Bran in Bran 2. This episode will also set up some important points of comparison for future episodes for us. Uh, So for example, episodes where we explore the intersections of disability and masculinity uh, and also Arya specifically's experience of masculinity as part of her uh, experiences of girlhood. So this is kind of a point of comparison for both of those two ideas. So to begin, let's talk about how childhood broadly is imagined in A Song of Ice and Fire. So we already have a sense of childhood in A Song of Ice and Fire is not necessarily holding the same idea of innocence that it does in modern Western society. Uh, So as we discussed in a previous episode, Brands witnessing a beheading at the age of seven is obviously not what we would expect uh, a child in you know the Australian context for us having to go through. Um, certainly not being encouraged to go through by his father. And though some have argued previously that children in the Middle Ages were not considered fundamentally different than adults, uh, historians generally these days do agree that childhood was understood as a separate stage to adulthood, even in medieval times. Um, but their idea of childhood still was different to ours. So it's not that children in the Middle Ages were just adults, but shorter. Um, They were considered different, just not how we think of children as being different. So in researching for this chapter, I um, read a chapter called Oh My Sweet Summer Child, Children and Childhood in Game of Thrones. Now, I apologise in advance for how I pronounce uh, these authors' names. I did look up and listen to how to pronounce them, and I don't think I'm going to manage it correctly, but this is my best go. Uh, so it's Hedda Strongard Jensen and Magnus Vitzgard. I'm really sorry uh, for those <laughs> of you who know how that's pronounced for that pronunciation. Okay, so they both write, Once children were out of infancy, the age of seven seems to have been an important turning point in their lives, especially that of boys. Around this age, they were better able to participate in the family's work and to act more independently. Reflecting this change, children this old could be punished for some criminal acts, although only at 14 could they be charged as adults. In contrast, inheritance laws showed that financial maturity was set at a much later age, 21 being the crucial year for nobles in medieval England. For girls, age was much less important than marriage as the decisive point of change in their social status. Marriage also marked an important passage to real adulthood for boys, as it meant becoming the head of the household. So 
In this light, at, as a seven-year-old, Bran is expected to participate in some of the same activities uh, as the adult men in his life, but they're not going to occupy his whole life or his whole time. We have seen Bran is beginning to be instructed in how law and order works in Westeros, and we also know that he's being trained in archery and he's being educated in his home. But we can see in Bran too that Bran is not yet expected to participate in all the activities that an older boy would. Brand 2 begins with Bran telling us that Rob, Theon and Joffrey are all joining the men on a hunt. Uh, but we do get the line, Prince Joffrey rode with his father, so Rob had been allowed to join the hunters as well. And this line suggests that even at 14, Rob is kind of only at that borderline stage of being allowed to go for the hunt. Because we kind of get the impression that if Joffrey didn't go, Rob probably wouldn't have gone either. So in this free time, uh, Bran is able to explore... Uh, But he is also expected to fit a particular role in his family like the rest of his siblings, especially because of his noble status. We know from John 1 that Bran is expected to one day become one of Rob's bannermen and rule a holdfast, or at least according to John. And we know that John is in always 100% reliable in his interpretation of the the kind of social expectations around him. But that does sound pretty right. Um, And of course, the education and training that Bran receives at his current age is preparing him for a life that's at least similar to that. Although interestingly in this chapter we also get Bran's expectation of what his future will look like and Bran thinks he's going to be a knight of the Kingsguard. Uh, So he says, Old Nan said they were the finest swords in all the realm. There were only seven of them and they wore white armour and had no wives or children but lived only to serve the king. Bran knew all the stories. Their names were like music to him. Sermon of the Merishield, Sir Ryan Redwine, Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, the twins Sir Eric and Sir Arik, who died on one another's swords hundreds of years ago, when brother fought sister in the war, the scene is called the Dance of Dragons. The White Bull, Gerald Hightower, Sir Arthur Dane, the Sword of the Morning, Barristan the Bold. So this is a very romantic view of what being a knight would be. Um, and it's very specific to the point of view of a child. This is very much how a child would imagine what a knight would be, uh, what the life of a knight would be like. Now, we know that in theory, Bran would need to inherit if Rob died, uh, without an heir at least, and the Kingsguard kind of children of their own or own land. So it does seem unlikely that Bran's choice of future would be approved by his family. It's not to say that he couldn't do it. I mean, we've seen that Jamie has entered that life and that's certainly not what Tywin would have wanted for him. Uh, But it's certainly not what is expected of him by his family. So we can kind of assume at this point, this is a young child's kind of fanciful imaginings of what his future will be that doesn't necessarily line up with his reality. So what I really like about Bran too is how it uses this portrayal of a romanticized boyhood to deftly develop world and place building while also drumming up that tension leading to one of the series most iconic moments and i think with uh brand's fall in relation to its portrayal of boyhood we see you know his innocence is shattered along with his legs you know he witnessed um sex for the first time and it's in a particularly horrible way uh it being incest as well And then it is entangled with this violation of the value of knighthood, which he clearly holds as well. So all these things intermix and it is literally a fall from innocence for him. 
the other way in which this dwelling or knighthood is used constructively in this is it is one of the aspects of Bran's passions that he's about to be stripped of forever. Um, not to mention being now unable to go to King's Landing and meet one of his heroes that he literally just mentions. So it's feeding into that overall um, ramping up of tension before the climactic act of the chapter whereby it's all taken away from him. So in addition to uh, this kind of romanticization of the stories of knighthood as being a really core part of um, childhood for Bran, uh, another major part that we get in this particular chapter is this idea of outdoor space as a space for adventure and risk and play. So to think about this, I'm going to draw on um, a very prominent uh, media and cultural studies scholar, Henry Jenkins, and in particular, an essay from 2006 titled Opening of Complete Freedom of Movement, Video Games as Gendered Play Spaces. And Jenkins opens this essay uh, with this anecdote. Sometimes I feel nostalgic for the spaces of my boyhood, growing up in suburban Atlanta in the 1960s. My big grassy front yard sloped sharply downward into a ditch where we could float boats on a rainy day. Beyond, there was a pine forest where my brother and I could toss pine cones like grenades or snap sticks together like swords. Out beyond our own yard, there was a bamboo forest where we could play Tarzan and vacant lots, construction sites, sloping streets and neighbouring farm, the last vestige of a rural turned suburban. So if we compare this introduction to now a passage from Brand 2, we get The rooftops of Winterfell were Brand's second home. His mother often said that Bran could climb before he could walk. Bran could not remember when he first learned to walk, but he could not remember when he started to climb either, so he supposed it must be true. To a boy, Winterfell was a grey stone labyrinth of walls and towers and courtyards and tunnels, spreading out in all directions. In the older parts of the castle, the halls slanted up and down so that you couldn't even be sure what floor you were on. The place had grown over the centuries like some monstrous stone tree, Maester Lewin told him once, and its branches were gnarled and thick and twisted, its roots sunk deep into the earth. So Bran spends a lot of time exploring this um, kind of both outdoor but also constructed space. So it is, it's not that it's totally immersed in nature, but Bran is reimagining this uh, human-made space that is the castle as this kind of wild adventurous place so you see him bringing in ideas of the monstrous stone tree and the branches and gnarled and thick twisted and roots so it's it's really this kind of like again this gothic idea of the castle that's making it seem more uh natural and wild and adventurous than uh maybe a a stone castle actually is now we also know that brand's actions are not necessarily condoned Hmm. by the people in his life so there have been some i'd like to think it's a coordinated effort that's been taking place (laughs) uh to get brand to stop uh engaging in such or some of the more risky play that he engages in so specifically climbing the walls uh so initially we have cat cat making brand promise that he won't climb the walls and brand's like i won't but then he breaks the promise and like a a good boy (laughs) He goes and confesses to his father and Ned laughs and he calls him a squirrel and he tells him to try not to let his mother see in the future. So I don't think Ned is necessarily saying it's a good thing, but it's an understandable thing. Ned's kind of thinking, well, it's it's going to happen either way. It's going to happen. 
And that is definitely a dad thing to say too. <sighs> yeah. Just don't let your mother see you. <laughs> <laughs> After that, uh, we get Old Nan and Lewin try different tactics to scare Bran from climbing the wall. Uh, so we get a gothic horror story from Old Nan because that's what Old Nan wants <laughs> to do. Uh, so we get Old Nan told him a story about a bad little boy who climbed too high and was struck down by lightning. And afterward, the crows came to peck out his eyes. But then we also get Lewin, um, which I love the comparison of these two different approaches. <laughs> so Lewin, we get this kind of scientific demonstration. Quote, Later, Maester Lewin built a little pottery boy and dressed him in Bran's clothes and flung him off the wall <laughs> into the yard below to demonstrate what would happen to Bran if he fell. Now, as delightful as both of these approaches are, Bran dismisses them and he kind of always has these ideas of why it's not relevant to him. He's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm not made of pottery. That's not what would happen to me. Or that doesn't sound right. So Bran's kind of able to find these reasons why they don't really seem like valid reasons to not climb a wall. So then after that, there's a while where the guards would chase him. <laughs> Whenever he's climbing the wall, and I just I love that mental picture of this boy climbing walls and these guards having to chase him. It's like like they have nothing better to do than chase the son of their noble lord. But again, this fails because the guards aren't as good at climbing as Bran is, and Bran seems very proud of that fact. So again, I I do like to think that maybe Ned was like, oh haha, don't tell your mother, and then secretly went to old Ned and Lewin, and the guards were like, please stop him. <laughs> but anyway, it doesn't work. So the brain enjoys the risk and the adventure of climbing. And though there are these clear attempts to try to stop him, ultimately no one is thinking it's a serious enough risk to put a real stop to it. Because we know like, this is a society where Ned is willing to take his son to a beheading. I'm pretty sure Ned could put in a little bit more effort if he really wanted Bran to stop. So there's these kind of half-hearted attempts, I would call them, to stop. Yeah, as delightful as all these little anecdotes are, it does seem to lean a little bit into disability as punishment then, um, because of his defiance of these wishes of his parents. And I think the show draws an even clearer connection, because it's almost immediately before Bran falls that Cat says, no more climbing. So, yeah, so we get a little bit of hints of that, although I don't think it really drums down on that as strongly as you would think in this chapter. Um, I do like how all of this does give you a sense of that childhood belief in your own invincibility as well, particularly when Bran looks at the pottery boy being thrown off the edge and, you know, I'm not made of pottery. Like, that can't happen to me. It does give me a hint that, yeah, like, as children, we do tend to think we are indestructible. And then, you know, I mean, this whole climbing escapade that he's relaying and he said is just delightful to me because it is absolutely my life right now <laughs> with my little girl because she has definitely learned to climb before she <laughs> walks. She climbs all over her. She climbs in the lounge. She climbs up her, her high chair. Ah, <laughs> she's a squirrel too. So I completely relate to these parents right now. <laughs> and yes, she falls and hurts and cries. And then she she's immediately up and doing it again. So yeah kids <laughs> i think also another important element of this is that um most likely ned and lewin and the guards would have engaged in very similar kinds of play when they were young um and jenkins argues that a lot of the anxiety of boys play is um not the fact that it's happening kind of out there in the abstract sense out there in the world you know what's happening but the reality of being confronted um with what 
that play looks like when you're an adult and maybe you don't remember quite so clearly exactly what it was like to be a boy of that age. So Ned's request to not let Kat see brand climbing makes sense in this light. Young boys are expected to go out and take risks, but only if it's kind of a little bit obscured and a little bit held at a distance to the adults. And through this unstructured play, that's also how boys are expected to come to form a sense of identity. So Jenkins writes, Our physical surroundings are relatively simple and relatively stable compared to the overwhelmingly complex and ever-shifting relations between people, and thus they form core resources for identity formation. The unstructured spaces, the play forts and tree houses children create for themselves in the cracks, gullies, back alleys and vacant lots of the adult world constitute what Robert C. Moore calls childhood's domain, or William Van Vliet has labelled as a fourth environment outside of the adult structured spaces of home, school and playground. These informal, often temporary play spaces are where free and unstructured play occurs. Such spaces surface most often on the lists children make of special or important places in their lives. Now we do get a sense in Brand 2 of how Bran creates his own world in the unstructured space of the castle, so we get, quote, He liked how it felt too, pulling himself up a wall, stone by stone, fingers and toes digging hard into the small crevices between. He always took off his boots and went barefoot when he climbed. It made him feel as if he had four hands instead of two. He liked the deep, sweet ache it left in the muscles afterward. He liked the way the air tasted way up high, sweet and cold as a winter peach. He liked the birds, the crows in the broken tower, the tiny little sparrows that nested in cracks between the stones, the ancient owl that slept in the dusty loft above the old armoury. Bran knew them all. Most of all, he liked going places that no one else could, and seeing the grey sprawl of Winterfell in a way that no one else saw it. It made the whole castle Bran's secret place. And again, of course, Bran is not the only child living in Winterfell. It's very likely that other people have experienced this, but to Bran, this is this kind of secret, special experience that is unique to him, and it's only unique to him because he's carved out his own way of inter- like interacting with the environment and engaging with this um, environment in ways that are not intended. Yeah, I adore this insight into how Bran perceives and understands Winterfell. You you get this real sense that his is a his is a perspective that is entirely unique to him, or at least he feels it is. Um, he has an intimate knowledge of Winterfell that can only really be achieved by spending a childhood within it, with the freedom to roam like a young noble boy only can have. It is arguably unparalleled by anyone else to the extent that he is familiar with the makeup of most of the materials used in the building of the castle. Like we get that point where he understands how climbing up the broken tower's side is a bit more riskier because the mortar is turned to ash, whereas other parts of of Winterfell is more sturdy uh, in its makeup. And I also love how he compares his knowledge of Winterfell to a couple of characters, namely his brother Rob, who stands to inherit it as home in a way that none of his other siblings are, as well as Maester Lewin, who embodies knowledge more than anyone else at the castle. When he got out from under it and scrambled up near the sky, Bran could see all of Winterfell in a glance. He liked the way it looked, spread out beneath him, only birds wheeling over his head while all the life of the castle went on below. Bran could perch for hours among the shapeless, rain-worn gargoyles that brooded over the first keep, watching it all. The men drilling with wood and steel in the yard, the cooks tending their vegetables in the glass garden, 
restless dogs running back and forth in the kennels, the silence of the gods' wood, the girls gossiping beside the washing well. It made him feel like he was lord of the castle, in a way even Rob would never know. And then, um, so that's Bran comparing his knowledge of Winterfell to Rob and his relationship to Winterfell to Rob. And here he talks about Lewin. Quote, It taught him Winterfell's secrets too. The builders had never even leveled the earth. There were hills and valleys behind the walls of Winterfell. There was a covered bridge that went from the fourth floor of the bell tower across to the second floor of the rookery. Bran knew about that. And he knew you could get inside the inner wall by the south gate climb three floors and run all the way around Winterfell through a narrow tunnel in the stone, then come out on ground level at the north gate with a hundred feet of wall looming over you. Even Maester Lewin didn't know about that, Bran was convinced. And my favourite part of his whole description of his um, experience of Winterfell is when he gives that account of the familiar bird life about the place to the extent where they have a degree of personality themselves. They're essentially kind of friends to him. And of course, Bran's relationship with birds and flying, in quotation marks, will only develop further and insignificant. So again, it's a little bit of a hint of foreshadowing as well. And here, Martin again is using this rich description, this this idealized boy, boyhood invested in climbing, to also build a sense of the place that is Winterfell. And in a way, not only does it give us more of an idea of its physical layout, including potentially intel that may be significant for some fights at Winterfell in the coming books, but also does more than any other chapter so far into establish Winterfell's centrality as home. And like we said in a few episodes ago, our first introduction to Winterfell is primarily through the lens of Kat and John, who do not quite feel at home at Winterfell, whereas this is... And, and even with Eddard, his is kind of a perspective that's anchored in melancholy whereas here through the idealized boyhood construction that we're getting it's really drumming down this sense of Winterfell as home as warmth as comfort and you know when it comes to John and Arya's perspectives on Winterfell in their chapters it's anchored in exclusion as well and again it is also drumming up that tension as Bran is about to be stripped of all this his love for climbing most directly but also we see that climbing enables a relationship with place that is intimate and important to Bran it is intrinsically tied to his sense of home and we will see how Bran's paralysis radically alters his, his relationship with Winterfell going forward both in terms of his personally felt relationship with it there's kind of if I remember correctly, there's kind of a sense that he feels betrayed by Winterfell itself for his fall, as well as structuring through how its physical dimensions are now ill-suited for him. So he goes from what I would describe as extraordinary mobility, uh, leading into a feeling of vantage point above and beyond anyone else, to not being able or not being able to navigate it as well as even the average person. It is, I mean, I find it quite heartbreaking and it's, it's truly rattles his sense of Winterfell being home, although it doesn't completely sever that connection as well. Um, and then I think particularly of the way Bran internally frames all this, he frames his relationship with place. It also functions as foreshadowing for viewing from a distance through the weirwoods. You know, he's up above everyone else looking down at the activities of Winterfell, then none the wiser. I think that's very much going to be the case with him peering through the weirwood trees as well. 
and then flying is obviously the next step for Bran. So not to go too much into this because we will get around to it in depth later on, but the super crypt logic of all this is that Bran's disability is necessary to extend upon these specific experiences he values so much. So he will regain them and extend upon them in a way through that super crypt logic. And then again, this is drumming up how disability potentially worse than death, which is a harmful trope surrounding representation of disability. So the dramatic tension emphasizes a slew of things Bran is about to lose, being able to ride a horse for the first time, visiting King's Landing, meeting Barristan and Selmy, becoming a knight, climbing, exploring his sense of hope. But more on this next episode. Now, of course, through all of this, um, the idea of childhood and specifically boyhood uh, is a very gendered concept. We know that Bran's experience of Winterfell is not something that can be shared by his sisters, even Aya, who perhaps would really like to have a similar experience of childhood to Bran. Uh, there are some limits to what she's able to actually engage in. And boys and girls are not expected, are not socially expected to experience spaces of play in the same way. Uh, this is true for both the constructed world of Westeros and Winterfell, uh, and it also remains true in kind of that normative sense in today, in modern society. And Jenkins compares how space is constructed specifically in literature aimed at boys and literature aimed at girls and how worlds are portrayed in these two different types of literatures. So, quote, the space of the boy book is the space of adventure, risk taking and danger of a wild and untamed nature that must be mastered if one is to survive. The protagonists were boys or boy-like adult males and have none of the professional responsibilities and domestic commitments associated with adults. Now let's compare this to the girl book. Girl space is a space of secrets and romance, a space of one's own in a world that offers you far too little room to explore. Ironically, girl books often open with fantasies of being alone and then require the female protagonist to sacrifice their private space in order to make room for others' needs. If the boy book protagonist escapes all domestic responsibilities, the girl's book heroine learned to temper her impulsiveness and to accept family and domestic obligations. The female protagonists take emotional but rarely physical risks. This description obviously doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of how adventure is or takes place for girls and boys. We know that boys and girls uh, engage in real life in ways that is not represented in literature broadly. Um, but what this does do is it reflects a particular expectation of how boys and girls should play, whether or not that's actually how they do play. We can obviously also see from Aya 1 that Sansa would much better fit into the girl space than Aya does. Um, and we will need to compare Aya's experience of unstructured space as well later when we get to Cat of the Canals later in the series um, and just kind of see how she understands exploring spaces I, I think from memory there are going to be some parallels to how Bran is kind of understanding the Winterfell castle as well although to a very different end. Jenkins also gives us an indication of the role of gender when these spaces for adventure are taken away. So Jenkins writes historically girl culture formed under closer maternal supervision and girls toys were designed to foster female specific skills and competencies and prepare girls for the future domestic responsibilities as wives and mothers. 
The doll's central place in girlhood reflected maternal desires to encourage daughters to sew. The doll's china heads and hands fostered delicate gestures and movements. However, these skills were not acquired without some resistance. 19th century girls were apparently as willing as today's to mistreat their dolls, cutting their hair, driving nails into their bodies. If cultural geographers are right when they argue that children's ability to explore and modify their environment plays a large role in their growing sense of mastery, freedom and self-confidence, then the restrictions placed on girls' play have a crippling effect. Conversely, this research would suggest that children's declining access to play space would have a more dramatic impact on the culture of young boys since girls already face domestic confinement. So Jenkins is thinking here about the impacts of uh, specifically apartment living in his context. So he's reflecting on how his own son has a very different sense of what adventure means uh, to what he had growing up because his son lives in an apartment. In the context of Game of Thrones, we can think about how disability causes similar restrictions for Bran. So after Bran's accident, he can no longer just go out and explore the way that he used to explore. In the future, we will unpack further how ideals of masculinity inform disability as this uniquely tragic experience for a boy when it comes to reimagining a future. Uh, but even without Bran losing an imagined future, we can still see how disability has a gendered impact for Bran in the present because of how he has been taught to play. Now, it's also worth noting here that Jenkins actually in this article is specifically proposing video games uh, as offering a virtual space that can in some way simulate the uh, physical space of outdoor play. And I think we can think about Bran's flying and wolf dreams in the future potentially occupying a similar role, having this kind of virtual way of simulating the outdoor living physical space. I love that point. Because I've thought about that before myself, particularly in terms of like memory and space and how memory can organically attach to space. But where does that leave virtual spaces like video games? And then I really think about my own experiences as a kid playing in a lot, a lot of like open world games and then replaying them later and just having random parts of the space triggering memories of my previous play in ways that are just, yeah, like not scripted, um, but yeah, like recalling those previous experiences, those previous um, times of play in those spaces, which I think is a fascinating area to explore analytically. I imagine a lot of game studies and memory studies have already looked at that, but yeah. Yeah, I have um, really vivid memories of first exploring very particular parts of um, the different parts of World of Warcraft, like the different kind of continents or whatever in World of Warcraft and like first seeing these specific areas was just like it really was like in the secret garden going through the door and seeing this magical <laughs> space that you didn't know existed you're like wow <laughs> this is really cool it's interesting that you bring up world of warcraft because i imagine more than even other genres like i was speak i was speaking specifically to my experiences in like grand theft auto and mm. red dead redemption which are single player games mostly um, certainly in the way i've played them but world of warcraft you have a community around you too and that can layer those meanings those so th there's that social element of memory as well when it comes to warcraft which i've never experienced because i've never played world of warcraft my first experiences of world of warcraft were playing with a friend and she was more experienced in the game and she was kind of guiding me through the game and protecting me so i could go in these areas that were recommended for higher levels than i was and i would not have been safe going in on my own but with her is this like protector i could go in and then i could Big sister, um, big brother protecting. <laughs> yes, I could also like 
do the final kind of the final stab or whatever of the <laughs> the animal and then I get the XP for it. I'm like, yeah, the there's no way I could have taken this down myself. <laughs> so a few things to park for future episodes. Obviously, we've alluded to a whole bunch of things in terms of disability studies that we're going to want to um, mention. And uh, like we said, next episode, we will start to talk about um, some ideas in disability, but... Uh, there's a lot of different ways to actually tackle that. So we're going to be dividing those up into different episodes based on what we want to get out of it. Uh, but specifically, we also get our first introduction of Hodor in this chapter. So Hodor is going to be absolutely a character that we talk more about in a future episode, but not at this point. We're going to leave that for a future episode. Yeah, and the things I want to park for future episodes not necessarily tied to academic themes or anything that we're going to explore i just wanted to acknowledge that this chapter has the first mention of stannis and littlefinger who are very appropriately framed when you think about it you know stannis <laughs> is described as enough to give anyone indigestion which is perfect <laughs> and then i mean we get our first clue that littlefinger is not trustworthy as well because jamie describes it in response to Littlefinger potentially being named Hand, he goes, give me honourable enemies rather than ambitious ones any day. Like, mm. you forget about that by the time that Littlefinger's brought up. But his very first mention is that, uh, maybe watch this guy. Yeah, Jamie read him like a book. Cat could take some lessons. <laughs> and the last thing I wanted to mention was, is more just how Bran relates to John's anger very early on in this chapter, which I find very interesting. A, I think it's a very effective, again, writing from a seven-year-old perspective moment from from Martin um, in the way that Bran recognises that John's angry almost all the time now and he kind of thinks he's done something wrong, which is something a kid would absolutely think, just being surrounded by a big brother who's ambivalently angry. and They would wonder whether they did something to cause it. Um, but then... John's anger also is interesting because if that's remarkable to Bran now, it is absolutely because it's being triggered more by the presence of King Robert and Cersei and, you know, the whole king and queen's company. So that suggests to me that, again, John's experiences at Winterfell are not as isolated as we might think. Like, he usually is part of the fold. He's usually brought in with his brothers. He's usually at the high table. But because these people are here and because they're here for so long, he's just getting angrier and angrier because he keeps getting excluded so much. So that's not the norm for him. He still experiences some exclusion, even when they're not there, but not to this extent. That's how I read that. That's it for this chapter. We'll be back soon for A Game of Thrones, Chapter 9, Tyrion 1. If you enjoyed this episode, consider pledging to our Patreon at patreon.com slash tropewatchers. Pledges start at a dollar a month and help with our ongoing running costs. If you don't have cash to spare, you can also support us by rating us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Or send us to a friend who you think would enjoy the podcast. If you're a fan of A Clash of Critics, be sure to tune into our flagship podcast, Trope Watchers, the podcast about pop culture and why it matters. Our website is tropewatchers.com slash A Clash of Critics. We are on social media at A Clash of Critics, and you can email us at aclashofcritics at gmail.com. See you next time. Thank you.